Well, here at North Cross, we have seven core values that help to shape our decisions and also shape our culture as a church. And one of them is authentic Christian community. We firmly believe that growing closer to Jesus best happens when you're growing closer to one another. And that's for a, simple couple, a couple of very simple reasons. Growing closer to Jesus is not just head knowledge. It's not just learning things by sitting in a Bible study or sitting in a church service. That's part of it. But a big part of growing closer to Jesus means doing what he said, which is take what he says, listen to it, and then put it into practice. Take the, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of what he's done, and apply it to who you are as a parent, as a, a spouse, as a single person, as a college student. Whatever your place in life, what does Jesus mean to you? And part of ap- applying that means you need people around you to speak into your life and to help you know what to do with this amazing news that transforms every person's life. So growing closer to Jesus best happens as you grow closer to one another. And this time of year, what we always do is we share with you why that's important. And I believe that this year, it's too easy. (laughs) I don't have to say much about community right now to convince you that it's good to be with one another. Because right now, here's where we're at. We've been going several months with social distancing, several months with staying at home, several months of not going into the office, Several months of not being able to come into church, not being able to go to your community center, having to wear masks. Whenever you go into public spaces, there's this barrier between people right now. We have experienced life alone, and many of us haven't liked it. There are some introverts who have loved it, but most of us acknowledge that uh, there's a lot of things in this season that we don't like. Um, We don't like having to wear masks. It's, it's uncomfortable. We don't like that. Um, we don't like not being able to give handshakes and hugs. Uh, most people don't like having to social distance six feet. Um, I, you know, if you look at the signs in the bathrooms now, you know, who likes to wash their hands after they go to the bathroom? I'm kidding. We have a sign in our bathroom that says, please wash your hands. But To be honest, it kind of feels like we're kindergarten teachers trying to tell the students what to do. Like whenever you walk into a business or whenever you walk into our church, there's all these signs. Like here's how you have to behave. You know, here's where you keep your hands. Here's what you do with your mouth. And it it can be almost demeaning. So what I've seen is that we as a society, a culture, and maybe this is even beyond the United States, we've come up with this phrase that I've been seeing everywhere, including our own signage here at North Cross. If you notice in the restrooms, it says, please wash your hands, and then it has this little phrase beneath it, a phrase that you'll see in a lot of different places. It says, please wash your hands, we're all in this together. Please wear your mask, we're all in this together. Please stay six feet apart, we're all in this together. I believe that in 10, 15 years, this will be the phrase that defines this year. This will be the year We realized that we did a lot of things we didn't want to do, but we were all in this together. There's something so compelling about the this that we're in, that it's compelling us to realize and remember that we have to be be together in order to do it. Another way to say this, we're all in, we can't do this that we're in unless we're all in it together. 
We recognize there's power in community. And right now, I don't have to tell you anything when it comes to the, the, the importance of community and togetherness. Our world has taught us this year how important it is to have community before you need it. And so going into this message, I'm like, I, I don't have to say anything. I can just say we're all in this together. Amen. And you guys will understand the importance of community and especially Christian community, but here's what I found this week, and here's what I'm going to share with you this morning. As I dug into this topic, I realized it's actually too small a thing to tell you that you need to have Christian friends to make it through the coronavirus. That is too small a thing. It's too small a thing to say that in this year of ours, we need Christian community more than ever before, which is true. (laughs) But Jesus actually pointed to something greater. There was a day that Jesus was talking with his disciples, and they were very troubled by some things that were happening pretty soon. And yet as they were troubled by them, Jesus pointed to a bigger picture that drew them together. So that in the book of Acts, as you see the the disciples first starting this thing called the church, the Christian church, the, the thing that people naturally did was gather together, gather together, because they understood it wasn't just the year they were in, it was the life that they were in that drew them together. We're in this together. Not just in this coronavirus season, we are in this life of ours together. What we're going to do today is focus on the first part of that phrase, in this together. What are we in? What are we in? This life of ours is a compelling case for us to seek out Christian community around us. This life of ours. And what I want to show you by the end, what I want to allow Jesus to show you by the end, is number one on the sheet for today, that there's a greater this that calls for a greater together. I want to show you the greater this that we're in right now. Greater than a virus. Greater than anything economic and, anything, and, and greater than the, the tensions that we're seeing racially, the this that we're in is so much bigger than that. And that's a lesson that Jesus had to teach his disciples one day, and it's a lesson I had to learn this week, and it's a lesson I want to share with you. And the, the place we see this recorded, where Jesus points to a greater this, is in one of the four accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, is a, a person named Matthew, great name, uh, he, he was uh, writing down a record of Jesus' life, and he actually, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recorded parts of this conversation. What happened was Jesus seems to be maybe not in a bad mood, but kind of in a testy mood. This was actually just a few days before he was going to die. So if you grew up in church, you know, Palm Sunday already happened. Jesus already rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's in Jerusalem, and one of the things he does so much this week is teach. Um, He's at the temple, he's talking to the religious leaders, and he's putting them in their place for misleading the people about who God was, and their priorities and their focus was all off. And so Jesus is just leaning into these uh, religious leaders, and Matthew chapter 23 records a lot of his conversation, and Jesus was definitely, you know, direct in what he said with them. And then in Matthew chapter 24, as soon as Jesus is done speaking to them, he steps out of the temple And it seems like the disciples who were following him just needed to let out some tension. Like, have have you ever done this? 
where maybe there's an argument going on somewhere and then it kind of settles down for a bit and then you try to lighten the mood with a joke and make everyone laugh or you try to find some way to, to lighten the mood a bit. You know, maybe that's what the disciples were doing here because as soon as they walk out of the temple, they did something that I think is kind of unusual. Here's what happened. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings, to the, te- to the temple buildings that were all around them. And for me, this is kind of unusual timing. Like, why now? Why on the way out of the temple and not on the way in? And I can't really answer that question, but what I do know is that I probably would have done the same thing. If I were with you, walking back around the temple complex, back when it was still standing, it was an amazing thing to see. The engineering behind it was amazing. The manpower needed to make it was amazing. The wealth it required to build was amazing. And the technology it required was cutting edge. It was an amazing building. In fact, if you're interested, you can YouTube it. You can look for what it used to look like and see on a scale like what it would be like standing next to these huge stone pillars and stone walls. It was an amazing thing to see. And for a moment, these disciples were fascinated. And that's kind of a word that I'm going to come back to a little bit. They were fascinated in that moment. I like that word because fascinated means that your interest is irresistibly drawn towards something. Fascination can be a good thing. It's an interesting root, actually. Fascination used to mean what a snake does to its prey. A snake will fascinate its prey. It'll, it'll move in such a way and look at it in such a way that the prey just can't move. It's un, un, irresistibly drawn towards that snake. It just can't move, and that's what makes it vulnerable. But to be fascinated with something means that your, your whole attention, your whole focus goes to it, sometimes in an okay way, but sometimes in a bad way. Maybe I'll illustrate it or quickly like this. Um, is anyone in here, or anyone online, like, are you really good at lawn stuff? I've, I've been to some of your houses. I know some of you are really good at lawn stuff. Like, it's one thing to keep your lawn green, but it's another thing to cut it well, like with those straight lines. And I was never good at that. And I think I finally figured it out. And you can tell me after the service, like, your little tricks for it. But what I would always do is I'd try to keep my straight lines while mowing the lawn, but I'd always just, you know, do this. And I think the reason was I would always use my previous line as the guide for where I was going. I would always keep my eyes down on where I'm about to step. And basically all that did was it kept me in line with the pattern that was already in front of me. And I think I figured it out. And Helmut can, can correct me if I'm wrong. What I found is you shouldn't look right in front of the lawnmower. You should look at where you're going to end. When you keep your eye on that end, you keep that straight line towards where you want to finish. Is that fair enough? Um, Okay, you can add some more tips after the service. But you have to keep your eye on the end. If you're fascinated by something in the middle, you won't end where you want to be. Or in um, sports arena terms, sometimes where you sit is an obstructed view. And that's exactly what these disciples had in this moment. They were fascinated by something that was fascinating. But Jesus wasn't going to have any of it because this was obstructing their view of what's at the end. And it's just a few days away until their faith is going to be tested. And all of a sudden, in that moment when Jesus is dying on a cross, all the glory of the temples of Jerusalem will not help them. 
So in verse 2, Jesus addresses them. Jesus says, you see all these things? They're like, yeah, we see them. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be, not just gently eased down, but every one of these stones will be thrown down. And these stones aren't just like little rocks. We're talking tons for each one. Every one will be thrown down. Now, there's some remarkable things about this. First of all, what's remarkable is that Jesus predicted what would happen in 70 AD. The temple and the walls would be reduced to rubble. Not just shaken up, not just burned and hollowed out, but no two stones would be left on one another. If you're interested, you can look up the history that Josephus records. He, he records it as if, you know, the walls where they used to be, they were dug up to the foundations and everything was just leveled. There was no sign that anything had been there before. That's interesting history. But what Jesus is getting at is that there was something fascinating in their present that was obstructing their view of the future. And what we know is that this thing that Jesus just shared with them was so troubling that they couldn't let it go. Sometime later, we're not sure how long, after they had left the temple area and once they were at the Mount of Olives, they finally let out what was on their minds. Verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, tell us, they said, when will this happen? Tell us, when will this happen? And maybe they understood this is really short-sighted because buildings and cities weren't really Jesus' thing. Like, he didn't even have a house to live in. And so maybe they understood the short-sightedness of this question. And so they, they added on some religious things to the end. Tell us when this will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This is so troubling. We can't imagine a world where this could happen. Is this it? Are you talking about the end of this world? What they wanted is something that we want. In their life, they wanted some clarity of where things were going. Just like in our life, in this life of ours, we want a clear view. They simply said, give us a clear view so that we know what to do. If you want us to do the things you want us to do, would you please just give us a clear view? And the one thing that Jesus is teaching them in this moment is simply this, that what fascinates you can obstruct your view. There can be good things and bad things. We can be fascinated with technology. We can be fascinated with disease. We can be fascinated with the good times. We can be fascinated by the bad times. And something that I've heard, this uh, somewhat online and some personal interaction, people are looking at all the stuff going on in the world right now, and they're saying, is, is this it? Is this the end? Pastor, what do you think? Is, is, this the, like, is, is this Revelation chapter 24? Is it just around the corner? What's, what's going on? We just want a, a clear view so that we know what to do. But what Jesus is about to say, that the things that might worry us in the moment have the potential to become an obstruction to what we want to see. He goes to his disciples, and in what he's about to say, he simply says this, do not let something that is temporal obstruct your view of what's eternal. I know you're worried about these things, but don't let that obstruct your view of what is more important coming up. In this life of ours, it is so hard 
to go through all these obstructions and things that we have to manage and deal with. Like you have to manage relationship conflict. You have to manage career issues. You have to manage personal health. These are things that we have to navigate throughout this life. Just like in 70 AD, the people in Jerusalem had to manage the fact that their, their city was being destroyed and the temple was being leveled. Yet in the midst of all these things, the thing that Jesus is going to hold out is to not let these circumstances become an, obst- an, an obstruction to viewing what is eternal. And what Jesus does next is he basically gives them a list of things. Like, here's the things that are going to come up. Here are the things that have the potential to sidetrack you or detour you from the way that I want you to go. And I'm telling you these things right now so that you will not follow them, so that you will not have an obstructed view going through your life. And so he, for, for those disciples, he goes through this list of things that were going to come up for them. And these are things that still, to some degree, come up for us today. In this life of ours, you will have to navigate these things. And here are the things that Jesus pointed to. Jesus declared, watch out. You'll see this come up in, I think it's fill in number three. Be careful. Watch out. Yes, he's with you. Yes, God is there. But there are still some things in this life that we need to watch out for. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah and they will deceive many people. In this life of ours, there are so many traps. There are so many deceptions. Oftentimes through people. Sometimes people who mean well and think they are doing well, but they're actually deceiving people away from God. In this life of ours, you have to watch out so that no one drives you away from the truth of God. In this life of ours, we have to be careful. He goes on. You will hear of wars. I want to stop just with here. You will hear. News. (laughs) The news will tell you many things. And I don't think that things were quite as bad back then as they are now. But what I do know is that we still hear news. You will, hear, you will hear of wars, wars that are actually happening between nations, armies going against armies. You will hear rumors of wars, that wars are on the brink of happening, that there are more missile tests, that things are still going on. But see to it that you are not alarmed. You will have to navigate this, but do not let it become an obstruction to your view of something bigger that is coming. See to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen Remember this, but the end is still to come. These things do not signal that the end is here. They are separate. They are temporary. They come and go. The end is still to come. Do not let fear of what you hear in the news obstruct your view of what is eternal. In this life of ours, that's what we'll have to do. Jesus goes on. He says, there will be, there's more. Just wait, there's more. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, famines that threaten your livelihood, earthquakes that come up unannounced, natural disasters that no one can predict, things that will leave you wondering, where is God in this world, and has he left us to our own? All these things are not the end. Don't let them obstruct your view of the end. All these things are just beginnings of birth pains. They're signs that the end is still to come. We have to go through hardships in life. And in America, I think we've got it easier than most. But sometimes there are a lot of uncertainties with regard to health or food or income. Jesus says, you'll have to navigate that. 
but don't let that obstruct your view of what is to come. And then finally, Jesus lists one last thing that would be harder than anything else for those 12 that he was speaking to. He said, then you. Not just the world out there, things happening out there, but there will be things that happen to you personally. You will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. This was for, especially for his 12. This isn't talking to Christians today. He says, you will be hated by all nations because of me. This is how things will happen. You'll have to navigate that. But don't let that be an obstruction to what's still to come. And then finally, he gets to the end. Uh, Jesus goes on, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But, but the promise that I have for you is this, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And just put yourself in their shoes for a second. I mean, you can handle wars and rumors of wars and famine and, and uh, earthquakes. You, you can handle that stuff. But then when Jesus says you'll be persecuted and you'll be put to death, that's not the end that they wanted. In fact, they still didn't understand, even though it was just a few days away, they still didn't understand that Jesus himself was planning to be arrested and persecuted and put to death. And for me and for you, that's probably the same thing we would think. Where is God in the midst of all of this suffering, all of these bad things, and especially in the midst of death? He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Well, we can't really see that happen, can we? Because by our view, it all seems to end the same. Some of you maybe have been rocked by what's going on in this world. And the things that have been happening to you have been obstructing your view of what God wants you to see. And I'm not here to, to tell that to you so that you feel guilty about it or to shame you for it because I'm right there with you. The things that happen in this life, they're too much for us to handle. In this life of ours, we are surrounded by so much uncertainty and so many reminders that we don't have as much control as we would like to think. And then to top that all off with stand firm and you'll be saved. In the midst of everything that Jesus just said, we would have to raise our hand and say, Jesus, you just left us no firm place to stand. <laughs> You've taken away everything that we could possibly stand firm in. To which Jesus would reply, just wait a few days. It was especially on Good Friday that Jesus died that these 12, soon to be 11, would ultimately cave into their fear. All certainty would be gone. All security would be out the window. And they would be left on their own, alone, wondering where God was. And some of you feel that way too. But the good news is that Jesus did not leave them alone. What secular historians observed is that these disciples believed with all their heart that three days after he died, he came back to life. And what the biblical historians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all point to is the one fact that nothing in the Bible would matter if this one event did not happen. That Jesus died and then came back to life. You see, that's the one thing that ultimately left us no place to stand firm. And yet Jesus took that for you. 
He stood firm in his death so that you can stand firm in yours. He stood firm in his resurrection so that you can have new life in him. The standing firm to the end isn't about what you do. It's not about you being strong and you having yourself together emotionally and mentally. It's not about you being physically healthy. It's, It's not about that kind of standing firm. Standing firm is all about where you stand. And when you stand in Christ, nothing can shake you. There are going to be things that try to obstruct your view of the end that God won for you in Christ. But in those things, stand firm. Stand firm in him. And this was the good news that ultimately launched the church. As Jesus continues this, he he focuses on, on one final thing that I want to elevate for you here today. You see, as they talked about the end, they said, what's going to happen? What's the sign that the end is coming? Basically, they were asking, what's going to happen to us that we know that all things are now done and that this world is going to be gone soon? And Jesus said, here's the things that will happen, but those aren't signs of the end. The end is still to come. There's one thing that has to happen, and then you know it's here. He says this, verse 14, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom, this good news of standing firm in me will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then, not after an earthquake, not after a war, not after a pandemic, but the work of my kingdom, then the end will come. The prospect of looking towards the end isn't about waiting in fear about what will happen. The the thought about the end, the true view of what will happen, should compel us to ask what we should do before then. And I want to back up just real quick and acknowledge one other thing. As you look at the brokenness of the world around us, and no one denies that, this world is broken in so many different ways. I think the temptation is for us to come to the conclusion that we're broken too. And I think that we can kind of use that as a defeatist mindset. I'm in a broken world. I'm just a broken person. What can I do? I'm just, I'll just wait around. What can, it's, it's this defeatist victim type of mindset. But what I want to challenge you with today is that you, you were broken. You used to be broken until God found you. You used to be fragile. But then God filled you with some power. You are a jar of clay, but within you, you have a treasure that gives you life and purpose and hope. It's this double-sided truth that we have to keep in mind. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are not broken anymore because you have been forgiven and healed through what Jesus did for you. And, And you stand firm in that. But we still have to be careful. Number three, you have to be careful because you are a redeemed person living in a broken world. And as Jesus himself said, this is like a a narrow door with a small path to walk down. In this life of ours, you are redeemed right now. You are forgiven right now. God declares you holy right now in Christ. That's who you are. But in this life of ours, we have to navigate a lot of things that would lead us to believe otherwise. It's one thing to say in, in this year of ours, in 2020, we, we know that we're all in this together. And this, we, we know this, it's true. The world is teaching us this, but there's something bigger than this. There's something even greater that should compel us to one another. 
And it's simply this. This life of ours compels us to be in this together. This life of ours in which we live as redeemed people in a broken world. And as you look at that list that Jesus came up with, what you and I are compelled to do is seek out not just friends who can commiserate life in a broken world, but Christian friends who can live as conquerors, standing firm in what Christ has done. So I have one question for you. In this life of yours, right now, are you currently in this together? Would you say that as you look at your relationships in your life, you have a close group of Christian friends who don't just share life with you and hang out with you, but people who help you acknowledge the obstacles that might obstruct your view of what God wants you to see? Do you have friends who can help you navigate these things with a view on eternity? Not just friends who sightsee life with you, but friends who help you see eternity. And the reason I ask this is because the ultimate conclusion here is not that I want every single person to join a growth group at North Cross. This is our model. This is the best way we as a church can organize and create opportunities. But maybe you found something else that works for you. And if you did, I would love to hear about it. I would love to hear how you are doing life together. But if this message is kind of prompting you, like maybe I'm not in this together like I should be. Uh, There's a couple things. Number one, come back next week because in this week we talked a lot about this, you know, in this life, what this life of ours is like. And next week we'll talk about the real blessing of together and community and why Christian friends are unique. But as, as we go forward here, there's a, a few different applications. And I'm going to give you a, a few different things because I know that based on who you are, you might be brand new to North Cross. You might have been here a while, but you're not in a group. Or you might be in a group already, and you're like preaching to the choir, dude. So I'm going to give you three quick things to walk away with depending on where you're at. If you are newer to North Cross, I have a challenge for you. Would you spend nine weeks just trying out what it looks like to be together. We have a group called Starting Point. That's a pastor-led group. You'll see me. You'll see Pastor Ben. It'll be a chance for you to spend nine weeks with people as you talk about the important things that God shares with us in his word. And you'll also have some time at the end to share your faith story and to hear the faith story of the people around you. And after nine weeks, you're done. Just get a feel for for it. Get a taste for what it's like. Join Starting Point. In fact, if you've been a member for a long time, you can do this too. Nine weeks, pastor-led group. It'll give you a good feel for what community is like, and it'll share with you why we're a church of small groups. A second thing, if you're not in a group yet, and if you're a member, this is easy. Join a group. (laughs) Um, We're making it easier than ever in this season to find a group. I had mentioned Starting Point, which is a a nine-week thing, and... What we're also doing is adding some other short-term groups. Like maybe your personal schedule is like, I can't, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in January. I can't commit to a year-long group. Would you spend eight weeks in a group? Would would you consider a short-term idea? Um, Some things we're offering too. We have a group starting with, uh, for cancer support uh, people, uh, people with cancer to give them encouragement and support. Uh, We have a a short-term group that I'll be leading called Bible 101. It's it's an eight-week course that, We'll simply guide you through some of the basics about the Bible as you get to meet some other people around you. 
We've got a, a group for college students starting up. We've, we've got groups in different areas. We've got groups that meet in person and groups that meet virtually. If, if you're a member of North Cross and you're not in a group yet, we want you to be in a group, not because of the coronavirus, but because of the life that we're in. And then finally, if you are in a group already, you can pat yourself on the back and then ask this question. Would you rethink what you want your group to do for you? Have you approached it as this is a place to be with friends or have you approached it as this is a place to be built up by other Christians, to have them challenge me in the moments where I need to think twice about how I'm viewing the obstacles in my life? What I know for me and for Ben is that we're not asking you to be in a group to help you get through a virus or to help you get through a tough year. We're inviting you into Christian community because of this life that we're in. A life that's too much for anyone on their own, but a life that's filled with opportunity to reflect the love of God and to build up those around us as we do this life of ours together. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, this year has been tough, and it's, who knows when it'll end. This is a season where we all get that it's important to have good friends, good relationships, I pray that what we've all experienced this year to some degree would just be a foretaste of the importance of the community that you offer through your church. Um, the best that we can do as a church is to create environments where these relationships can develop. But what I know is that where your gospel is alive and where your spirit is at work, you compel us from the inside to reach out and to form those relationships. So what I simply pray is that you would allow all of us to see the blessing of community. We're all in this life, but what we can choose to be is in this life together. So bless our church this week and next week as we roll out some opportunities for people to be a part of a group. And I ask you to bless those efforts. I pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.